Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and I'm here today with Bruce Jackson, author of the book, Never Far From Home, My Journey from Brooklyn to Hip Hop, Microsoft, and the Law. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, listen, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure, Lee. Can we talk a little bit about where you are now? What's your position with Microsoft? Give people the end of the story, and then we're going to circle back to your beginnings. Well, what I'm doing now, and I'm the Assistant General Counsel, Managing Director of Strategic Partnerships at Microsoft. And let's talk about the beginning, because that is what most of your book is focused on, is the journey that you took from your childhood to where you are now. So can you can you talk to us about that? Well, if you want to talk about the beginning of my childhood, I grew up in pre-gentrified Crown Heights. Uh, that's Brooklyn, New York. And it was a predominantly African-American neighborhood, a poor neighborhood at that. And I tell people all the time, since everyone was poor, I didn't realize I was poor at that point. And we lived there with my mother, and I lived there with my other four sisters and one brother. So there was six of us. Uh, my father wasn't really a presence in my life at that point. And at the age of nine, we moved from Brooklyn to Manhattan. And we happened to move to what's known as Amsterdam housing. And Amsterdam housing, for those of you who don't know, is a public housing building. We call it the projects in New York. And so we lived there. We moved directly across the street from Lincoln Center And it was at that moment that I realized that there was a difference. There was rich people and there were poor people. And you may ask why, because across the street, literally across the street from the projects, was wealthy people, right? It was high-rise buildings with doormen. And so I noticed at that point there was a difference. And so nonetheless, I still had many of my families lived in Brooklyn. And we traveled back and forth pretty often from Manhattan to Brooklyn. And what you see in those neighborhoods, um, you see crime, right? You see people selling drugs. Uh, you see people getting killed. And people are, a lot of people are doing some of those things for money um, because there's certainly a lack thereof in the inner city. And I kind of managed to stay out of those things because, one, I realized that selling drugs would get you in jail. And I was well aware of both the physical and the sexual abuse that took place in jail. And I knew committing crimes such as robbing someone would, uh, or selling drugs would ultimately get you killed. So those are the things that I just stayed away because I didn't really want to disappoint my mother, my aunt, or my grandmother, who were the three important women in my life. And I just didn't want to, one, die or, or go to jail because I realized the consequences of those things. Although in your book, you detail more than one encounter with police. And, you know, even as the reader, knowing you're okay, you know, nothing too terrible happened after those very terrible experiences. My heart was in my throat. And the first happens at the beginning of the book in what can be one of the more dangerous kinds of encounters that can spiral out, which is a simple traffic stop. What made you decide to start the book with that? Because I just want to give people the story that regardless of whether you are a professional in America and the conversation I oftentimes have with my colleagues, that I can close a billion dollar deal, a $10 billion deal in the office. But once I leave the office, I'm a black man in America. 
and no one is stopping me, including the police officers, and asking me where I work or what's the latest deal that I closed. They're looking at me as any other black man in America. And as a result, I'm subject to the the abuse that some of us are subject to, um, regardless of my profession. So I just want to highlight that so people can see that people who actually are arrested oftentimes are not people who are guilty. And they're certainly not just people who are on the street corner, as many people would imagine. They can be professionals, whether in the, in, in the legal profession as well as in my case. And there was also a very disturbing experience you had as a, as a 10-year-old boy. And like I said, reading the scene, my heart was in my mouth. Uh, you were on the subway, and I'll let you tell the story, but I was, I was very afraid for you. Right. I think, Lee, one of the things that happens, I stated we left Brooklyn at the, when I was nine years old to move to Manhattan. And one of the things my mother taught us early on was how to take the train back and forth to Brooklyn because that's where our family and friends live. And so I must have made that trip on my own at, at least a dozen times. And people may say, 10 years old, you're taking the train from Manhattan to Brooklyn. Well, that's just something you do at that point, at that stage. And at this particular time, I took the train, leaving Manhattan, stating that I was going to make it to my grandmother's house in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, before dinner. And I took the express train, got off the express chain, train, switched over to the local. And before I switched over to the local train, there was a Caucasian cop and a Caucasian man saying, he did it. And I looked at the cop and our eyes locked and he proceeded to come in my direction. And so what do a 10-year-old kid do in that situation? You run. And that's exactly what I did, um, except I couldn't run out of the train station. I had to jump on the track, step over the third rail. And for those of you who don't know, the third rail is the electrical rail that powers the New York City subway system. So I stepped over that, then I climbed on a ledge, and I went in the tunnel from one station to the other. And by the time I exit at the other station. There were at least four cops there. And they arrested me and took me to a precinct not very far from where my grandmother lived in Crown Heights. And they began to interrogate me, right? Essentially, their philosophy was, say you did it and you get to go home. And they repeated that a numerous time. And I constantly stated no. And I said, why are you stopping me and arresting me? They said, because you robbed somebody. And we have witnesses. All you have to do is admit to the crime. And if you admit to it, you get to go home. And for some strange reason, this 10-year-old skinny black kid did not admit to a crime he did not commit. And so after about two and a half hours, my mother and my uncle came to pick me up from the precinct and took me to my grandmother's house. And I think the real message behind that story and why I wanted to shed light on that is because I think people are quick to rush to judgment when someone runs from the police officer. But that's what you do if you're an African-American during that time. And that's what I did. That's no different than any other African-American. At 10, I'd formulate an opinion that the police officers were not my friend. And so I ran. And so running doesn't always mean that you're guilty. That's the message I want to send out with that. And sometimes a kid may confess to a crime that they didn't commit because they want to go home. And I came close to admitting to committing that crime because I wanted to go home. And that's the message I want to send. 
And one quick example, if I may, Lee, that comes up is the Central Park Five. And for those of you who don't know about it, you should read about it. And all you have to do is uh, Bing Central Park Five and you'll get all the information you need. But just a quick synopsis, it was essentially a couple of African-American boys were accused of raping or abusing a Caucasian woman in Central Park. And they admitted to the crime. And it was subsequently determined that they did not commit the crime after they served several years in jail. But we all rushed to judgment in New York, stating that these guys are animals, they're beasts. And because they admitted to committing something. And what they wanted to do is what I wanted to do was to go home, except I didn't admit to committing a crime that I did not commit. So that's the message I kind of want to get out there. Let's not be quick to rush to judgment, particularly when African-Americans, one, run from a scene of a crime, or two, admit to something, because not in all cases they're guilty. I'm recording this from Illinois, and as a state, we had to reckon with a great deal of wrongful convictions that later were proven by a number of different ways were based on confessions that were coerced or confessions that were just false. It, 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 it happens. I'd love to talk about, though, what I, what I perceived as the reader in that moment of you, this, this small 10-year-old child, rightfully terrified, and it would have been very natural, and I'm not at all judging the Central Park Five for um, bowing to the pressure, but you had this spirit of tenacity. There were these adults telling you that you needed to do something and a little inner spark inside you went, no. And I saw this coming up again and again as many adults in your life who seemed to want to dissuade you from aiming higher. Um, And you had this unusual journey that took you to Hofstra and the NOAA program and and Georgetown. And I'd just like for you to talk a little bit about your path to college being in the first generation. No, I, I, think, you're, I think you're absolutely right, Lee. I think it is unusual in retrospect when I look back, but I didn't know how unusual it was while going through the journey. I think one of the things I did um, that I thought was a great decision at the age of 14 I made a decision to participate in the co-op program. And what the co-op program is, a program in high school where you work one week and go to school one week. I thought it was a brilliant, and I made that decision on my own. And I thought it was a brilliant idea from a social standpoint, because I think it kept me out of jail. It provided me the opportunity to understand what the workforce was, uh, also the opportunity to earn a legitimate wage. Um, But I think academically, it was a poor decision because now I'm going to school essentially part time and the school that I attended wasn't a great school to begin with. So just imagine that you're going part time to a not so good school. Um, However, like I stated, I think it kept me off the streets. So it saved me in one respect, but it put me through a lot of suffering and heartache the other on the other side. So, of course, my teachers in high school, English professors said college wasn't for me. Um, He told me that to my face, and I kind of just ignored him, and I said, okay, it's just going to be a challenge for me. So when I finally applied to college, the only college I was able to get into was Hofstra University, and it was not directly to Hofstra. It was part of a HEOP program, which is a higher education opportunity program, 
And in order, to, and it was program designed for students both academically and financially disadvantaged. So that kind of fit me perfectly. And I had to complete, however, a summer program. And after about two weeks in the summer program, I realized that school was just not meant for me, or better yet, it was I was not prepared for it, for college. And I called my mother and said, Mom, this is just too hard. I'm quitting. And my mother just didn't want to see her son in pain and said, if you feel that strongly about it, you can come home. But then I had to also run it by my aunt. And her position was, Bruce, you're not coming home. I heard you want to come home, but you're not because your mother picked cotton, couldn't look white folks in the face, had to address them, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. She said, I had to do the same. And she said, and your grandmother had to do the same. But she said, more importantly, no one in our family ever graduated from college, not just your generation, anyone in the Jackson family. And she hung up the phone. And so at that point, if it was just left up to me, I would have quit. But I realized that you can have purpose for reasons other than yourself. And so at that point, my goal was to pay it forward to my ancestors who suffered and my mother and also have a purpose to make sure the next generation, not just Jacksons, but people who have obstacles, learn how to get past them and through them. So I had purpose in life at that point. And therefore, my philosophy at that point, my first roommates were two Caucasian students from the West who were well-educated, not smart. I don't like to use that word. They were just in an environment and had the resources where they can reach their potential. And I didn't. And so I realized early on, there's two, one quote, Frederick Douglass has a quote that states, if there's no struggle, there's no progress. And I said to myself, Bruce, this is going to be a painful ordeal. It's going to hurt, but you got to be patient with yourself and show yourself grace. And then there's another poem, which is written by Longfellow, that talks about the height reach and kept by great men would not achieve overnight, but they, while their companions slept, we're tolling up what's doing tonight. So that just means you have to work harder than everybody else. So I just couple those two together. It's going to hurt, but I can work harder than everyone else and catch them because I knew early on the average person doesn't want to work more than the maximum time required. And what does that mean? If you have a nine to five job, most people are gone by five. But if you stay to five thirty and six over time, if you're patient with yourself, you'll catch up to them. And so that's kind of what got me through Hofstra. And so ultimately, I was asked by the dean of the school to really teach accounting, to tutor accounting to the entire university. So here it is, this African-American kid from the ghetto in New York, now tutoring the entire population in accounting at Hofstra University. But that was just due to hard work, right? And it was painful and it took time. But accounting became my passion. And so that's how I kind of got through Hofstra. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our advertisers. And when we come back, I'll still be here with Bruce Jackson, author of Never Far From Home. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I 
happy24.cc and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Welcome back to our conversation with Bruce Jackson. I was delighted uh, when I read about how much accounting appealed to you because I hear so many lawyers make jokes about, oh, yeah, I ended up going to law school because I, I hate math. And um, my own mother is an attorney, as is my father. And I think my mom to this day probably still has nightmares about tax law. But you, that was your you know, touchstone. You you thought that tax law was fascinating. And, uh, you know, you had this degree in accounting and you could have gone down the accounting path. What made you, instead of taking an accounting job straight out of school, decide, nope, I'm going to Georgetown and I'm becoming a lawyer? Well, what happened was I was offered an accounting position by many of the big eights. And right now that pretty much tells you my age. They're the big four today. And I basically accepted an offer at Arthur Anderson. So the recruiter, when she started telling me about the package, she asked, she said, well, what do you really want to do? I said, I want to go to law school. And she said, don't accept this offer. She said, go to law school, because if you start working here, we would love to have you here, but you'll stay here. And see, it's about intervention. It's about, I worked hard, but I had a lot of people came into my life that basically mentored me, provided support or advice. And I was smart enough to follow it. So she essentially at that point said, don't take it. She said, you should go to Georgetown. I said, I applied. I'm waiting. She said, you should have an interview. She picked up the phone and scheduled for me to have an interview. This is a recruiter from Arthur Anderson. And so ultimately, I got into Georgetown, and I still didn't want to go. So I'm going to give you another piece of information. So I said, I don't want to go. Georgetown's too expensive and it's too far. My family's here in New York. So two weeks before law school was supposed to start, I went to Brooklyn Law School and the dean accepted a meeting with me. And at the end of the meeting, he said, listen, based on your qualification, we'll accept you, but we have no money left. It's only two weeks before school starts. And he said, I'm going to give you some advice that I would give someone that's related to me. He said, don't come here. He said, if you got into Georgetown, I don't want you to have any regrets. He said, and you will. So he said, you should go to Georgetown and not come here. Again, intervention from someone I didn't know. And I listened to his advice and I went to Georgetown because at that point I was willing to go to Brooklyn Law School and stay either with my grandmother or my mother to save money. But at least I would be in an environment or a city that I I knew and I was comfortable in. And so when I got to Georgetown, you're right, I took six tax courses in the JD program, which is highly unusual. Most people barely take one. If they have to take one, they'll take one and that's it. But you're right, I just had a passion and an interest in it. And then I ultimately got a job 
at a tax boutique and started to pursue my LLM in tax as well. So it was just something I was interested in. Another thing that you have been interested in since childhood is the entertainment industry, acting, singing. Um, that was an area of your life you talk about, you know, there there is an untraveled path there where you might have gone down uh, and instead you picked this path, but it did lead you to the entertainment industry. Can you talk about how you went from, you know, practicing, I believe it was tax law at a white shoe firm for, for two years, making good money to branching out and getting into entertainment law? Right. I think the people say, why entertainment law? I think when people read the book, they'll realize, even my friends, I kind of kept it away from my friends. But growing up, I always wanted to be on Broadway. And then if you want to be on Broadway, what you were taught then is you have to be a triple threat. And what is a triple threat? Someone who can sing, dance, and act. And I took those classes in singing, dancing, and acting. Um, However, when it came time to me making a decision after high school, I didn't bet on myself because I didn't know how to, right? No one taught me that. And being a kid from the ghetto, essentially, what I did, I looked at people I knew who wanted to pursue the theaters, and many of them were butlers or waitress. And one of the things I've learned is that you can't bet your future on someone else's failure. You have to say to yourself, you're going to win despite how well someone else did. But I was too young, so I looked at their failure, and I determine whether or not I wanted to pursue something based on how other people did in a particular area. So the lesson I always teach kids now is bet on yourself, believe in yourself. Despite what other people are doing, despite other people's success or failure in a given profession. So that was my interest in entertainment. And you're absolutely right. I turned down a, I left a high paying job in tax, came to New York, and I actually interned so to speak, to be quite honest with you, with a prominent entertainment attorney. I did that, but he's only paying me $6,000 a year. So I had to then figure out a way I can subsidize my income to live in New York. And one of the first things I did, I taught graduate tax. But then I called my mother back up in the projects and said, Mom, I need to come live with you. And she said, you want to come back to the projects? You're an attorney. I said, that's the only way this is going to work. And so I live with my mother while I was developing my entertainment practice. And let's situate this in time for people. You were getting into the music business, primarily hip hop and rap. It was the early 1990s. Is, is that about the right time That's period? absolutely right. All right, so, so what was going on in the music industry at this time, specifically in the area that you were concentrating on in hip hop, rap, and who were some of the big names you worked with? Oh, hip-hop was just starting to take off, right? It started early, but the 90s were the prime period, right? And just personally speaking, I think it was the best hip-hop as well as R&B music that we've seen. Um, I think what I was fortunate of when I got into the area, um, my first client was Pete Rock, C.L. Smooth. And the interesting thing is Pete Rock was, I would say, the top rap producer in the country at the time. Others may say Dr. Dre, but it was either he or Dr. Dre. And I went to visit his family when I heard he was looking for an attorney. And his father essentially said, and brother, listen, we are not, everyone wants to represent my son, even people who weren't from my neighborhood or from my neighborhood. But we're not going to raise our kid to the age of 18 and pass him on to someone who doesn't look like us. 
and asked me, am I ready for the challenge? And will I accept? And I said, absolutely. So I have to give Pete Rock and C.L. Smoove all the credit for starting my career and played a major role in me being who I am today just by giving me that opportunity. And as a result of that opportunity, we end up representing LL Cool J, Buster Rhymes, Heavy D, rap R&B groups, Changing Faces, SWV, uh, Little Kim, Junior Mafia. We had a slew of top rap and R&B artists at that time in the 90s. So it was good to us, right? And what we attempted to do just from a DNI perspective my philosophy is Burt Bedell was the top business manager in the industry, represented all the top stars, rap, rock, R&B, baseball players, basketball players. And Burt and I were good friends. And he would often ask me, Bruce, why are you not referring your clients to me? I said, Burt, I like you. I said, however, I want to give my clients an opportunity to work with women and minorities. And I want to give women and minorities an opportunity to represent clients they ordinarily would not have represented. And I think that created some issues, not with Bert and I. Bert and I remained good friends, but I think the industry, the industry was not made up of, was made up of very few African-American attorneys. So now you have an attorney, African-American is doing well, sending a message out to other African-American attorneys and women that they can do well. And now you also introducing as business managers, women and minorities. So that was going against the structure of the industry. So, of course, um, people wanted to take me out. And their attempt was, one, let's see if he'll work for us, which I refused to do. And then secondly, let's see if we can get their client, his clients, which they tried, but they were not successful. One, because the cultural connection. And two, which is most important, is because I had the accounting background. I had the tax background. And I knew how to negotiate a contract just as good as anyone else. So professionally, it was hard because I came with skill sets that many of them didn't have. And culturally, the connection made it difficult for them to try to really take the clients. So it was a it was a good run until I decided to move to Microsoft. And that move to Microsoft until I got to that chapter, I really was as the reader. I'm like. So, you know, the, the progression actually did make a lot of sense, like you said, with your accounting background with tax law. That meant that you could look deep into financial records, see if your clients were being treated fairly, um, structure contracts in a way that actually would work out for them and not just be exploitative. But then I was like, okay, but then how did the leap to Microsoft happen? And then you explain, okay, well, this was coinciding with a giant change for the music industry. And uh, you know, I was like, oh, that's that's how it happened. But could you talk about how you made that transition and why you made that transition to Microsoft? Right. One of the things I always try to tell young attorneys, just people in general, I say you have to basically manage your career, how companies manage their business. And what they do, they look at, you have to know history. You have to understand the industry you're in. Look at the history. You have to look at where the industry is today and try to envision where it will be in the future. Uh, And you put yourself in a competitive advantage if you do that, right? And companies do it all the time, right? They try to figure out going forward, do we leapfrog or do we just get a picture of where we think is going and let's move in that direction? And so same thing I did with my career from the music industry. I said, where was it? Where is it today? And where is it going in the future? 
And we talk about digital transformation a lot today, right? And when we talk about it, we talk about business digitally transforming. However, the digital transformation for the music industry took place in 2000. And you may say, well, what do you mean, Bruce? Well, music was distributed physically, i.e. an album. And then ultimately it was distributed digitally, right? I.e. Napster made it a form of digital distribution. And so my goal at that point was to work for a technology company for one or two years. And once I did that, I would come back and have a competitive advantage over all the other attorneys, as well as the executives in the music industry. And so Microsoft was looking for someone to help them get into the music industry. And I was looking for someone to teach me the technology. So it was a perfect marriage. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our advertisers. And when we come back, I'll still be speaking with Bruce Jackson, author of Never Far From Home. Welcome back to our conversation with Bruce Jackson. So, Bruce, the title of your book is Never Far From Home. But when you made the leap to Microsoft, you went across the country, you went to Seattle, and there was a deep culture shock. And it must have felt the furthest from home you'd ever been. What were those first years at Microsoft like, and how did you use that experience to ease the way for people looking to join after you? Oh, I think it was lonely. It was a lonely existence. For one, Microsoft in 2000 wasn't very diverse. I was the third African-American attorney hired by Microsoft. Uh, when I joined, one left, so it was just myself and a young lady. And then Seattle wasn't diverse as a city in 2000. So it was tough. It was lonely. I worked literally six days a week and sometimes seven. I left my family back on the East Coast. And so that was the experience there. And so after about two years, I approached the general counsel at that point, who's now our vice chairman and president, Brad Smith, and informed him that I was ready to go back home to New York. And he asked why. I said, because there's not enough diversity here. And For me, being in an area that's diverse is more important than anything else. And at that point, he said, well, I get you, I understand, which is important. He said, I understand. Uh, Not many leaders would say, I understand. He said, I understand, and let's see if we can get you back to New York. And I promise you that we'll make this place more diverse. And so I held him to his word. And I played an active role in helping to make Microsoft a diverse place from that point to now. Um, So that's how I kind of survived that period. The two years was a learning experience. And he allowed me to come back or provide an opportunity for me to come back and work for Microsoft in New York. Had he not done that, I wouldn't be at Microsoft today after 23 years. And there is a passage in your book where I, I feel so deeply for you, but it's also screamingly funny, where a couple of your coworkers who, you know, you point out there wasn't much socializing after work, uh, which also contributed to the loneliness. But some of your coworkers said, hey, let's go out to the bar and, uh, you know, maybe dance, have a good time. And remember what time period this is. And this is Seattle. So essentially they took you to a club where they were playing grunge and there was a mosh pit. And you have this paragraph where you talk about how you know, the next thing I knew, I was out on the dance floor, except no one was dancing, at least not any kind of dancing I recognized. They were just jumping 
bouncing into the air like a pod of dolphins, shaking from side to side, craning their necks and then thudding to the floor over and over. And there I was right alongside them. And truly, (laughs) it must have been so alienating. But the way you write about it is just extremely vivid. Um, And I did want to talk to you about the experience of writing this book and, you know, putting your story into words. You have such a great descriptive and conversational style, and that doesn't always come naturally to lawyers who have to speak very technically in their professional life. So, you know, how did it feel writing your story and, you know, being a storyteller in print in this way? I think one, it was, I mean, some of the stuff was was painful then and getting the feedbacks for some of the people who were in the story is still painful, right? So it was a learning experience for me. So it was therapeutic for me as well. But I thought one of the things that people constantly ask, they said, sitting in the office of the vice chairman of Microsoft, they're surprised that I'm telling all the details of my story. Because I didn't. when I went through the exercise, I didn't go back through it and start cutting things out and said, ah, this is not, this doesn't make me look favorable. My philosophy was, if I'm going to really inspire people, and the intent is to inspire not just African-Americans. The intent is to inspire people from rural America, immigrants, women, right, members of the LGBTQ plus community, because we all have barriers and obstacles in our way. And we have to fight or push through it until society makes the changes that's necessary. I tell people often that if you take a kid from an affluent area, wherever you are in America, and put him in an inner city, that kid will struggle. And if you take the same, some kid from the inner city and put him in an affluent area, that kid will thrive, because it's all about resources and environment. So before that happens, or until that happens, we can't afford to leave another generation of people behind. And so the book is really to inspire people to break through. And the fact that Rural and urban, we have so much in common in terms of obstacles. If you are in rural, you don't deal with police brutality or that sort of situation or racism. However, you have economic barriers and we it's kind of akin to urban. But we sort of have these bias against one another that we haven't come together and say, hey, let's fight this together because we're stronger together. And so part of what I want to do is just shed light on we have a lot of commonalities with people who have obstacles and barriers. And let's, like, move those things so everyone can start off on a level playing field. And everyone can start at the one-yard line, not some at the one and others at the 50. Let's give everyone an equal opportunity to be successful in these Americas, right? And so that's my ultimate goal. So in order for that to happen, I had to tell the truth. I had to be transparent in order to gain credibility to the story and for people to see that I'm authentic. So I couldn't shave anything off the story to make myself look good. Because if I'm going to identify with people from the inner city, they have to see that I'm truly from the inner city. And I share their experience and their pains. So that's one of the things that I did that was uh, because I needed to do it for myself, and I needed to do it to really help to inspire the next generation of young kids. And a really powerful line that you say, you've you've said to many uh, younger people who you've mentored is, 
you tell me your truth and I'll tell you mine. And you do talk about, for example, you know, the move to Microsoft to Seattle was important for your career and it helped you provide for your family, but it separated you from your family. And you are open about, uh, you know, the struggle that your professional life sometimes created in your personal life and choices you made that, you know, you look back on and you think, well, you know what, I was wrong about that. So I do think that this is a very open memoir. Because you've had so many experiences, both with influential and important mentors in your life, but also being a mentor, I would love to get from you some advice for my listeners. I think there are a lot of well-meaning people out there who would like to be that important person who gave a perspective to you know, a young Bruce Jackson that led him to decide, you know, nope, not Brooklyn Law School, Georgetown, to be that kind of figure who can help pull up other people after them. But it doesn't come naturally or easily to to many people. What are some of the important principles you bear in mind when thinking or acting on uh, mentoring principles? I think one of the things that's important to me is, is about equity, right? I, my goal is I realize we live in the capitalist society. You're going to have rich and poor people. It's about pe- everyone having a fair opportunity to be wealthy. And and so when I think about just, so I look at people, I don't not necessarily in the challenges that people have and, and the benefits and privileges that I have today, right? And the benefits and privileges that my kids have. And I constantly remind them that we're obligated to help other people, right? Because everyone wants to live a better life. Some people just don't know how. And it's incumbent upon us to show them how and to show them the way. But I think there are a lot of good people out there. And I think you're right. And people want to help. Some people just don't know how to help. But there are a lot of different organizations that you can participate in, right? And if you see how society has created certain issues that widens the gap. And one of the examples, we look at broadband. We realize that broadband is the gatekeeper to education, is the gatekeeper to health, is the gatekeeper to training, is the gatekeeper to jobs, how people search for jobs. And the reality is, is that there's a lack of broadband in rural and urban areas. Urban areas is just unaffordable. So one of the things people can do is take on some of those challenges to try to close the gap, right? And, and jump on the train, right? You don't have to be on the front of the train. One of the things I always say is that there's a lot of people who want to help. And so make room for them on the train, even if they're not on the train initially. Just make room for them to jump on the train later because we need everyone to help us change society and make this just a better society for all. So th- that's what I would say. Just follow your heart and, and and look at the inequities that really exist. And part of my book is to say, you know, I, I went through it. And I wanted, I wanted to, with the book, I wanted to give people who are privileged proximity to what it's like. And with proximity, hopefully you'll get empathy. And with the empathy, you'll get help. And that's what we need. We need all of you to help. And that's why I shared my story in ways in which a lot of executives would not share it. To switch gears a little bit, I would love to hear about your experience recording Never Far From Home as an audiobook. Uh, as an entertainment law attorney, you spent a lot of time in the recording studio with your clients 
you know, doing their art and suddenly you are the one being recorded. And obviously that's not part of the book, but I was just so curious. What was that experience like for you? Oh, it was a challenging experience. (laughs) (laughs) It was a challenging experience. And I think you're right. One of the things that I realized, I said, this certainly feels to your point. It feels like me now being on the other end of things, watching my clients record a record and watching them go through the whole process with the producers. Stop. You're not doing it right. You're not saying this word right. Right. You're not giving the inflections at the right point. So I was being directed. Right. So it was hard. Right. Because when we read, we don't always read every word. And we certainly don't give the inflections, right? We're reading to ourselves. And now you find yourself reading out loud for hours, hours at a time and having to say every word, pronounce every word with all the inflections. So it was, it was challenging, but I'm glad I did it in my own voice. Many people like it. And it gave me the opportunity to really incorporate some of my old acting skills. So I certainly enjoyed it at the end. I'm glad I did it. And this was your story to tell. You have this book out. Do you think that there is another book or do you think that this was the this was the one you had in you that you wanted to show the world and, and, and discuss with people? Well, uh, people are approaching me now and asking me about a book because I think we did really well the first week of sales, to be quite honest. Many people said we should have made the New York Times. We sold over 9,000 books. So people are asking me, and I'm saying, ah, I'm, I'm not sure. It wasn't my idea to write the first book. But I did have a conversation with some of my colleagues at Microsoft. And I said, hey, you know, one of the things that took place is in my office probably two weeks ago, I was having a business conversation and someone was standing to the side. And after I finished the conversation, after like half an hour, the person approached me and said, I really can feel your story. I have a lot in common. And it was a Caucasian man. I said, well, where are you from? He said, I'm from upstate New York. I said, well, we do have a lot in common. I said, we have similar struggles. We just got to remove the biases that we have. And I said, "Uh, hopefully I'm inspiring you to share your story and I can inspire people from your community. That's my goal. I said, however, do you go back to your community? Now you are working for Microsoft. He said, I don't. I said, you have to. I said, I can inspire people from your community, but what you have is an incredible tool. If you go back with your accomplishment, that's a great tool to inspire the next generation. So I need you to go back. And then you and I can work on a broader issue about the inequities that are confronted in rural and urban America. So I thought about that and I said, what would be a great story? The kid from the ghetto or urban New York working with the kid from rural. How we come together and try to solve some of these problems that we both face. So that'd be an interesting story to me. I would be interested in in reading or listening to that for sure. Just to close out, I'd like to circle back to the title of your book, Never Far From Home, which incidentally would also be a really good album title. (laughs) <laughs> I <laughs> I am used to hearing narratives where people talk about getting out of, you know, poverty, getting out of the projects. 
And that is not the story you told in your book. As you say, you went back, you continue to go back. It wasn't about getting out and away as much as it was about improving your situation and then being back in your community and raising up your community as well. Uh, At least that's how I interpreted it as a reader of the book. And I'd love to hear why you stress that so much or what your feelings are about that and how you came to that Never Far From Home title. Well, Never Far From Home, one, is the Microsoft office is located less than a mile from where I grew up. So it's two different worlds. And I go back to my community often, right? Because my family and friends still live there. And you're right. By me not going back, I'm not helping to solve the problem. The little kids have to see me. And I kind of remind them that I'm them. When they, when I was 10 years old, they remind me of who I was. And they should look at me as someone they can be. Because you have to see it to believe it to achieve it. And if we all just leave and they don't see it, they don't believe that they can achieve it. So it's important for me and the gentleman from Rule to go back and show kids that it's possible. And that's extremely important for people to see that something's possible. Even as an adult, you have to see something as being possible in order for you to achieve it. So it's important for me to go back to constantly remind people that I'm them and they are me. And if I can do it, so can you. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Modern Law Library. If people want to pick up either the book or audiobook of Never Far From Home, My Journey from Brooklyn to Hip Hop, Microsoft, and the Law, where can they do that? In all, it's bookstores, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Walmart. It's, it's all over wherever you can find a book. And thank you to my listeners for joining Bruce and I for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service. You can also reach out to us at any time at books at abajournal.com if you have a suggestion for a future episode. 